This episode of Control-Alt-Delete is brought to you by Braintree. Even the best mobile app won't work without the right payments API. That's where Braintree V.0 SDK comes in. One amazingly simple integration gives you every way to pay. But don't take our word for it. Try out the sandbox and see for yourself at braintreepayments.com slash walt. Hello, and welcome to Control-Alt-Delete, a Matrix-simulated podcast from The Verge. That intro comes from Mark Morgan on Twitter. It's powderkeg76, if you want to tweet at him. Uh, I thought that was great, because Yeah, it's we, kind of inspired by Elon Musk. That's what right? he says. He said this was Elon Musk's idea. I'm Neil Patel. I'm the editor-in-chief of The Verge. Uh, I'm joined, as always, by my friend, Verge executive editor, and importantly, uh, editor-at-large of Recode, which just had the code conference. I'm joined by Walt Mossberg. How's it going, Walt? It's going great, Neilai. It's going great. So we got a big show. There's a bunch to talk about. Most, I think most importantly, last week was the code conference. Walt, you wrote about it this week specifically about Jeff Bezos, who, in my opinion, I'm just going to say this, I think he won code if you can win <laughs> a conference. I don't, know, I don't know what that means, but I like saying it. Uh, and I think you know his only competition really was Elon Musk, who delivered yet another very quiet sort of apocalyptic vision of the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we should get into Bezos uh, a lot and talk about that. We should talk about sort of all of code, which I thought was wonderful. Uh, then there was really big news that sort of started breaking last week and broke into this week about Nest and Google and Alphabet. We should talk about that a little bit. A little bit. Right. And then today, literally just hours before we started recording, um, we ran a big feature. Phil Schiller sat down with Lauren Good uh, and... We ran. She wrote a big feature, a great feature about changes that are coming to the App Store. And what, the timing here is really interesting because next week is WWDC, but Apple's pushing out sort of the news of how App Store business models will change through subscriptions today. Uh, and then obviously WWDC will happen. So we should talk about those changes, talk a little bit what's going on in the App Store, and then maybe do a little WWDC preview. It's a news-packed edition of Control Walt Delete. That's what we're here for. I think people come to us for hard news. They uh, had, they do, and and I think what have we earmarked <laughs> for this one? Three hours. Yeah, I think exactly. three hours. Will, will yeah, handle. it's a marathon site. Look, Walt's in a new room. There, there's uh, uh, interns bringing water every twenty five minutes. We're just going to keep going. Oh no, that's a bar, right? <laughs> Yeah, both of us are uh, going to get drunk. I mean, you're in New York, but here in D.C. at Galactic Headquarters of Vox, <laughs> there's a bar in every room. <laughs> and there's old-timey bartenders just constantly polishing the surface of the bar. Right, and you can kind of talk about your troubles. And <laughs> one, once in a while, I'll do some work. I got to start, I gotta start commuting troubles. to D.C. more often. <laughs> you do. Uh, it's, it's amazing. It's real old school. Corridors of power type stuff. Anyway, Lava lamps, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> You know, my dream in life is to own a bar. If you get me started on this, it's gonna be, it's gonna be all. Over. Oh, really? That has to be a whole, a whole episode. Oh yeah, I, I actually gave up one of my prospective bar names to the site. I was gonna call my bar Circuit Breaker. I thought it'd be a great name for like a no, it's nerdy... a terrible name, a terrible name for a bar. Well, it's, it's like a, a great beach name bar for, for a nerds. gadget blog. Yeah, I gave it up. We'll see. One of these days. Yeah, well, we'll come up with a better one. <laughs> if you have a better name, tweet at Walt and I, and we'll come, we'll, we'll, we'll put it on our list of names. Anyhow, we should get right, right. into Code Conference. So, Walt, you have you and Kara uh, have been doing the Code Conference previously, the D Conference for a long time. Um, long time. I'm just going to say this: I've been to five of them between D and Code. Um, it went on; it was going on for long before that as well. But you're not going to like this. But I'm going to say this one. 
one of my very favorites and potentially the best of the recent few, um, simply because you guys spent so much time on the speaker lineup uh, and sort of the, the curating the audience. It was invite only this year um, that it was just everything was fascinating. And in particular, you and I have talked about this, uh, Bezos and Musk just like ran away with this show because they're in, in kind of like different directions. Um, and you focused very much on Bezos. So, and you wrote about this week. So tell me a little bit about that. He's been, touched all our lives and been tremendously successful for 20 years or more. And he doesn't stop uh, innovating. He, he's got this giant company. He's got a $100 billion company, which is practically a word in the English language. And yet he brings out new things, and, and the latest of which is he kind of beat everyone to this idea of a home, always listening, artificial intelligence platform. And people love it. So, and he has a lot to say about it. So uh, I thought it was a, a, a really interesting interview, and I don't take much credit for it except for spending two years convincing him and his people to actually come <laughs> to the conference. He had come once before in 2008, and we made a joke about – he made a joke about that, that on stage saying, every eight years like clockwork comes. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean we were able to roam over – a wide, wide range of things. It lasted about an hour and 20 minutes, including audience questions. And he talked about how he runs Amazon. He talked about his <clears throat> private, his non-Amazon ventures like the Washington Post and Blue Origin, which is a, a space, a commercial space company. Uh, and he talked about Amazon uh, and artificial intelligence. And so I just, today for the column, I thought, well, okay, what did I learn at Code? And I thought, I learned a lot of things because I also interviewed and Kara interviewed people like Sundar Pichai of, of Google and Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook and, um, uh, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates. And just like uh, we really had a fantastic lineup uh, this year. Uh, yeah, I'm very grateful to all those people for giving their time and, and to the attendees for for coming. But But I thought Bezos – in one session just combined so many of the trends going on and so much interesting stuff about how you manage one of these companies that uh, that's what I chose to write about. And I, and I pick five things. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you should read the column because in depth and we embedded the videos, the multimedia experience, but really the focus is, and this is one of your lines is there's, there's a few ways to be successful, right? And you can have the gut instinct of a jobs, you can have sort of the raw determination of the Gates and Balmer set, or you can be stubborn and f- relentlessly focused on iteration like Bezos. And I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and actually uh, deep intellectual curiosity. I think Bezos described it, I, I mean, he did describe it as wandering. Mm-hmm. And what he meant was not that he walks around, maybe does walk around, but he, he meant uh, wandering through ideas in meetings. He talked about uh, wanting to have a loose agenda uh, for at least some meetings uh, where ideas are thrown around. And he talked about, you know, getting intrigued by things, betting on them, working on them, and not giving up. up. I mean, he, he, he volunteered. Nobody asked him this exactly, but he volunteered his methodology about when he decides to give up on things 
and he said he, he used a term I'd never heard. Yeah. He said he sticks with projects and ideas that come out of these wandering sessions until quote the last high judgment champion folds his or her cards. What a great phrase. It's an amazing thing. I mean, it, it's like, and he said he, sometimes he's the last high judgment champion, so he made a self-deprecating joke, like, you might want to question the meaning of the word high judgment in my case. But <laughs> the point is, um, obviously, he or some team leader decides that person X is a high judgment person, and she has championed an idea. Mm-hmm. And there might be six other people that champion the idea, and five of them may give up. But if there's that one, you know, woman or man with high judgment who still believes in it, they're not going to. Bezos said he's not going to drop it. And I thought it was quite interesting because it's it's one thing to think about how do these companies start these projects. That's interesting too. But I've never really heard anybody discuss how they decide to get out of them or drop them, other than you know, commercial failure. Like mm-hmm. they they had a they had a smartphone they started – they uh, sold way too late and missing features and its kind of signature feature didn't work very well and so it was a flop. So that was easy. They didn't need somebody to fold their cards. That was a commercial thing and that happens to every company. But he has this internal method and I thought that was that was fascinating. I think – I mean it, to me that's the, that's the thing about Bezos and Amazon that's kind of the most interesting, right? They have – and you talked about that with him a little bit, the company culture. So Amazon's culture is famously hard driving. It's demanding. There was that great New York Times piece uh, yeah. a while ago about just how hard it is to work there. But his point was, and he said this, and I, I th- I've thought about this a lot. He said, if you are the sort of person who likes this environment, then Amazon is for you and you're going to do your best work. And if you're, you're not that kind of person, you, sh- you should go work somewhere else. And I think that's really interesting. And it ties to me back in this idea of the high judgment champion, right? Because if if you're going to sort of survive in this Amazon environment and you're being pushed to your best work, there it, it's almost like it, it creates that level of, well, we're pushing you harder and you're still fighting for this thing. So there's got to be something there. And I thought yeah, that was that's, really interesting. Yeah, that's the positive way way to put it. And I think it's probably true for a lot of people. I think, uh, and we did not, I should point out, we did not get into this uh, really. I did ask him about it, uh, this uh, New York Times thing, and he said he thinks he, you know, I asked him if it made him change the way he runs the place or rethink anything, and he said no. He (laughs) He said he thinks they have the gold standard of work cultures. And he talked about instead of work-life balance, he talked about work-life harmony, which I don't know exactly. But uh, what he meant by that, he went on to explain, you know, if you're happy at home, you're going to do better at work. And if you're happy at work, you're going to be a better parent or spouse or whatever at home. Um, I, I, you know, I think that's true. Um, It's a little bit of a semantic thing. But it, you know, it's it, the New York Times had actual examples of people who were pretty miserable. Bezos said we couldn't be doing these things with lots of miserable people. We just couldn't. It wouldn't, wouldn't work. Right. And so we don't have lots of miserable people. So I, you know, I just don't know. You know, he did open up a little bit about how things are done and, and how he decides to to do projects. He also, and this, okay, so we have a couple of other things to talk about with him that are external, but he also 
this this one is partly external, partly internal. I asked him at one point, you now have a big video operation, which they do, Prime Video, and they make their own shows. And some of those shows, like uh, Transparent, have won awards, like Golden Globes and things. And I said, okay, so you have this media thing, this video thing, you make your own shows, you win awards. Are, do you, are you thinking you're going to be a big media company and at the very least compete with Netflix? And his answer was really quite surprising. I don't know how you felt about it. But he said, first of all, no. Uh, he thinks he's not competing with Netflix except when it comes to buying you know, older shows from the standard networks. Right. There's a bidding thing where he competes with Netflix and Hulu and other people. But not in terms of of consumers because he thinks consumers typically will buy both for their homes. And I, I'd love to see data on that. I suspect it's true for a considerable number of people, but people do have budget constraints. Um, and then he said, and the other thing is, I don't think of it as a separate business. I'm paraphrasing a little now, but yeah. I don't think of it as a separate business. I think it's just part of the flywheel. And I said, well, what's the flywheel? And he said, he said, Every time we win a Golden Globe, it helps us sell shoes quite directly. Yeah. <laughs> Which I thought no one else who's ever won a Golden Globe <laughs> has said that. No one. I mean, seriously, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, Tom Hanks does not go up there and say, thanks for the Golden Globe. I'll sell more shoes now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm thinking like all the comic book movie. I, you know, Michael Bay isn't like, thank you for watching Transformers. Thank you for this award. He's he right. There's a different part of the movie business where you make the movies and you sell the toys, but they don't win awards, right? And like Amazon is in this prestige TV category, and right. that connection has never been there before. Yeah, right. The people that made you know Breaking Bad and Mad Men and back in the day the West Wing, Aaron Sorkin, yeah, they never got up there and said. Thanks for the award. Now we can sell more more stuff at our retail store. And yeah. but but he did and he said it's a flywheel and actually it's it's hard to tell what part of the flywheel drives what other part because it's a flywheel. It has and flywheels have m- momentum as you know, uh, Neli. So yeah. he, he was saying, here's the deal. We sell you a prime membership, which is now what? About 99, I think. Yeah. What went up? Uh, 99 a year, which originally started just as free two-day shipping. We sell you this Prime membership. Part of it is that you get to see these shows for free, these streaming shows. Um, But another part of it is that because you paid the money, the annual fee, Prime members, our data shows, Prime members browse more, they buy more. And so every time some Prime benefit is used, including the award-winning TV shows, we think it just encourages people to do more in Prime and that includes selling, buying shoes. And I think that's why he doesn't think of it as a competitor to Netflix. Because if you are Netflix, you're paying the money and you're getting Netflix. And if you are going to buy Prime, you, I don't think anybody pays the $99 a year just for Prime movies. I think they look at that entire bundle of services. And I, I get why he's saying it's not a competitor, but it's it's they're just they're sort of orthogonal to each other. You can look at each one as an accessory to the other in, in a variety of ways. Like you're, you're making different purchasing decisions. Either you have Netflix and you're like, I want free two-day shipping. Oh, and I get video. Or you have Prime, you have Amazon video, and you're like, oh, I want more video, and you buy Netflix. I don't think you necessarily just pick one or the other. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah. No, it, but I found it, you know, and again, I, I'm not taking uh, credit myself. I did ask the questions, but I tried to let him. Well, I'll, uh, here, I'll, let me, I'll take some credit. Finally, for once <laughs> on this podcast, I take some credit <laughs> against the great visionary Walt Mossberg. Uh, <laughs> no, so uh, I asked him, uh, why don't you sell the Chromecast? Why don't you sell the Apple TV? You uh, did. And why aren't there, why doesn't Amazon Video, if the point is the flywheel, why don't you put Amazon Video in all these places so you can kick that, you put even more momentum on the flywheel? Right. Uh, and he said, we, first he said something about, first he said something about user experiences, which is kind of the standard answer to, we don't sell the stuff. Right. Then he demurred about whether or not he knew he sold the Apple TV. He's like, oh, we right. sell the Apple TV. And Walt, you corrected him. And he's like, I don't know everything we sell, which to me, uh, I'm pretty sure he knows he doesn't <laughs> He knows that, that yeah. Um, yeah. And then he finally got to it, which was there are business terms. Acceptable the, business Acceptable terms. business terms. And, and here's what I think he meant about the – first of all, we should explain. Uh, you do ask you, – you, long before you and I were colleagues, you've been coming to these conferences and asking great questions. And there's a number of other people, some journalists, some not, who do a very good job – of asking questions that we, the interviewers on stage, uh, forget or never thought of or whatever. So it, it's terrific. Um, but I think what he was saying about user experience ties into the acceptable business terms. Apple demands a cut. Uh, it's a 30% cut um, of sales. So, for instance, if you use the Amazon's Kindle app, which I do mm-hmm. on an iPad, you ha- can't, uh, unlike on an Amazon tablet, there's no built-in store. Or unlike like on Apple's own iBooks, there's no built-in store. There could be. It's not a technical limitation or any Apple rule. But once the store is built in, Apple gets 30% of everything sold. So he won't do it. He refuses so he actually – they actually um, you know, encourage you to put an icon for the Kindle store on your iPad or iPhone and it's – a, It's a uh, web bookmark. Yeah, it's a web bookmark and, right. and go buy the books that way. And I think there isn't probably an easy way to do that uh, on Apple TV. So he thinks it is a degraded user experience. But it's not because Apple set a rule against him having the store. It's because he's pissed at having to pay the 30 percent and he won't do it. Just just like – I mean this is not only Apple. It's just like he won't sign the Google Android agreement that would give him various Google services because – I mean he once told me this. You know, he uh, – this was some years ago. I He said, I'd love to have something like Google Maps on our version of Android but – I'm not going to sign this thing, which forces me to take all their products. Right. Uh, and he, you know, he can do that. Yeah, and that's a choice so, to make. So we talked about a few other things, and I, I we have other things to talk about in the podcast, so I don't want to go through all of them in great detail. Um, he talked about the, the Washington Post. He came out pretty strongly, uh, very strongly, I thought, for uh, on the Peter Thiel Gawker media issue, which – uh, has to do with people applying – billionaires applying large amounts of money to back suits uh, against publications they don't like in hopes of driving them out of business. Uh, he spoke you know, like a, like a, like a, a news publisher yeah. uh, about that. And similarly, Donald Trump had taken a shot at him 
and and he had already in, in December pushed back, but he did it again. And this time he went back to a famous moment in Washington Post history, which was uh, the Watergate uh, episode where they brought down Nixon and Nixon's staff said uh, that Kay Graham would get one of her body parts <laughs> put through a ringer and he said he was happy to have any one of his body parts put through a ringer to do the right thing with the, with the newspaper. So he sounded – I mean it was – I'd never heard him kind of talk in his newspaper publisher role like that. But he was you – know, he was talking about things that whether it's, whether it's Peter Thiel or Donald Trump, he said these are things that are designed to chill – or freeze coverage, and uh, he warned that that was inevitable to uh, American what, what did he call them cultural norms yeah. and and to the Constitution. So that was one thing. And then he talked about space, which he went, we went on and on about that. He drew a distinction between himself and Elon Musk. He said they were generally like-minded on certain things. For instance, they're both trying to work on reusable rockets, which for some bizarre reason, neither NASA nor the Russians ever thought of doing. <laughs> I mean, the space shuttle was a was a specific case, but these are the kind of rockets that can go much farther distances than the space shuttle, theoretically at least. But he said, you know, Musk is very dedicated to colonizing Mars, which Musk, once again, for the 80th time, confirmed when we uh, had him on the next night. And he is—he thinks of it as laying an infrastructure for people to then then go do other things. One of which I think everybody was like, you know, st- stunned by. He said, "We're going to move. We should move all of the all of the heavy industry off the planet Earth." He said, "I can assure you, this is the best planet." Yeah, we've looked at the other planets. This is the best planet. So. Rather than having a plan B, which Musk has sometimes talked about, you know, of we'll, we'll live on Mars, some of us will live, you know, fewer and fewer of us will live on Earth eventually because it'll get all, it's getting too polluted and too crowded and all that stuff. Uh, Bezos was more like, let's save Earth, we'll move the heavy industry into orbit, we'll send things that we make, like chips and things, down somehow. He didn't explain how. And he said, and we'll zone Earth. For residential and light industrial, which I thought was a great line. <laughs> Amazing line. And the timeline, he, he, I think he said like 100 years or something, which, you know, sounds like impossible. To, you know, it will it'll be far after all of us, but is actually not that long of a timeline. Right? No. It's, it's, you know, presumably like if I have children, they will see the end of that timeline. No, Which I mean you have to you have to invent new rockets. You have to figure out how to move factories into orbit. He talked about how in orbit you could do it all with solar power because, as you know, the, uh, one of the things that makes Earth the best planet is that it has an atmosphere, and the atmosphere <laughs> blocks about half the solar rays or more, or we'd all be dead. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but in space you get the full effect on your solar cells of of the sun. Uh, and uh, he thought that was a good advantage too. Um, so we did that. But the 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 part of the interview I like the best, and uh, I, again I won't dwell on it because we have to move on. But uh, was artificial intelligence, and frankly, that was the theme that ran through the whole Code Conference this year. We never impose a rigid theme, but everyone is doing it, and the whole it seems like 
yeah, there are other cool things going on. Self-driving cars, profoundly impactful. VR, AR, uh, lots of other things. But AI is, it turns out, all these companies, even eBay, Mm -hmm. we had the CEO of eBay, he talked about it. We had the CEO of Ford, he kind of sort of tried to talk about (laughs) it. but tried. <laughs> I'm not sure it was in his script, but um, but you know certainly Pichai from Google, Bezos from Amazon, Sandberg from Facebook, um, Ginny Rometty from IBM, Ginny Rometty from IBM, which has Watson. They were all talking about it, and, and Musk and Bezos said, he, I asked him if he was deeply. I used the phrase deeply committed to AI being a huge part of Amazon's business. And he said, absolutely. He said they have a 1,000 people working on it. He said the Echo and Alexa was something that took them four years to develop in secret. And uh, he thinks all the tech companies are going to get into it, all the major ones, and then there will be hundreds of startups. And he said, I think it's gigantic. It's probably hard to overstate how big of an impact it's going to have on society over the next 20 years. It has been a dream since the early days of science fiction to have a computer that you can talk to in a natural way and actually ask it to have a conversation with you and ask it to do things for you. And that is coming true. So he's not wishy-washy about this. (laughs) So that's the thing. You know, there's like you could have done an hour on Amazon alone. You could have done hours and hours on firing rockets into space and moving all heavy industry out off the planet. And then you could do an hour on AI. And then you we, you could have done five hours on the Washington Post. Um, and you packed it all into, you know, I think he, he had an hour there. About an hour and 20. Yeah. Oh, you know, he went long, right? It, Walt. Yeah. And, and he agreed to stay to hear, to take questions from. I watched from. Walt mischievously look at the clock and say, say to Bezos, can you stick around? And Bezos yeah. said, no choice yeah. but to say yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, right. But, well, what was happening was there was actually one of the monitors in front of us at this conference, and we've been pretty good at doing conferences. We've been doing them for 14 years. Uh, we, have a, we have what we call a notes monitor that gives us, you know, tells us things, and it says Bezos' staff says he has to go, but you can ask him if he'll do questions. And so I did. I put my hand on his arm. I mean, what was he going to do from the stage? Say, no, I'm not going to answer any questions. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so you, you, know, you packed it all in. But the overall sense I got is that Bezos is sort of the last of his kind of generation of founder, visionary, built the business to scale, has big ideas about how to do all kinds of stuff um, in all kinds of ways, has really interesting sort of management ideas, how do you run this big business, how do you grow it, is empowered to speak very directly because it's his. Um, and I think just to, to put a contrast against it, I thought Sundar is very interesting, but Sundar is a CEO of Google, which is part of Alphabet, and the founders are still at Alphabet, right? So Sundar's a little bit more constrained just because it, he didn't... I agree. It's not and... and it's not that Sundar doesn't basically agree with him about AI, but he has to be careful. He has to think, well, you know, there's people attacking us over privacy. Am I going to say – I mean, he's a great guy, actually. I like him a lot. Yeah, but, um, but you're right. If you want to look at these kind of founder operators uh, – because remember, the whole tech thing really didn't – the whole personal tech 
personal computer and everything that flowed from that started only in 1977. And I know for some of our listeners that sounds ancient, but it's not. You know, it's it's just about 40 years. I mm-hmm. mean, it's it's not. If you look at it, Bill Gates has retired. He's still the chairman of Microsoft, but and, and by the way, he spoke also and spoke very very well about philanthropy. He, he and Melinda Gates. Uh, but he is retired from day-to-day running of one of the giant companies. He was a founder, operator, and a, and a kind of industry leader uh, in a big way, and he's retired from that. Larry Page and Sergey Brin don't run Google directly anymore. Right. I mean, they, they've put themselves – I mean, Sergey, I don't know what exactly <laughs> he does. Larry runs this thing called Alphabet, which we should get to in another context in a minute. Mm-hmm. But – so he's not the operating head of Google. Sundar is. And and Steve Jobs, of course, who was probably the, the epitome of this kind of thing, is had, had died too early. He's gone. And so Jeff is really, if we're talking about consumer-facing businesses, Jeff is it. Right. I mean, you know. Well, I think he, there's Zuckerberg. That's the only other one I'd add to the list. Yeah, but, but, Mark, but Mark hasn't been around as, as long. Right. It's, it's and, still so new. Right, yeah. like the the uh, you know you can absolutely make the argument that Facebook has impacted the culture. They've grown to scale. They're very profitable. Oh, huge, et cetera, et cetera, huge. et cetera. But the thing that they're doing, a, is so new, and b, it's so I, I don't know how to put say this about Facebook. It's so focused, sort of inwardly, right? Like the, Zuckerberg isn't out there running around trying to launch rockets into space and saying I'm building a new business model for premium television and I'm gonna. Go d- or saving newspapers. Or saving newspapers. Or- uh, the, the broad expanse of the ambition, I think it's a, it's a pretty limited set. And I think Bezos is definitely one of those people. And it's also a little weird to think that 15 years ago, all we would have thought about him, and this, and this, would have been a, this was a great achievement, still is, continues to unfold, is just that he did an incredible job of building uh, what was what's been called the everything store. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, it's it's certainly the place I think of going to first when I buy stuff. Yeah. Uh, and uh, beca- and mainly it's because they have my information, including the addresses of people I give gifts to and all that kind of stuff. They sell almost everything, and as far, and they're very good. They're very reliable, and they don't violate. You know, as far as I know, they don't sell. I've never detected them selling my name to anybody, so I trust them. Uh, once you start searching for ads on Amazon, you see that stuff start pop, pop. You see ads. Once you start searching for a thing on Amazon, you see it follow you around the web a little bit. It's there. Is, you've never experienced this? Maybe it's them. I don't know. <laughs> it's probably them. And not it's somebody they sell it to. There's ads. a difference between them doing it yeah. and selling it. But, but anyway, point is, uh, that would be enough to give him... A front page obit in the New York Times, right. which, by the way, is the Walt Mossberg way of <laughs> deciding whether you're a high judgment person. High judgment um, champion. That should be yeah, our. Champion. We should do that. Should be our obit section. Huh. No, it's serious. Like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. Like 14 articles starting on page one, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I remember one of my childhood sports heroes, Ted Williams, who was kind of reviled uh, by New York Yankees fans. Yet. Front page New York Times. <laughs> Some other people not, you know, yeah. and 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 uh, you know, Jeff is definitely a front page New York Times guy. I hope he lives a much long, many 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 more years. But when his time comes, that's where he's going. Yeah. And even if he had only done the stores, what I'm trying to say, he would that would have been it. 
but he's now doing so many other things so that, yeah. that it made for a really interesting interview. And you should, uh, even if you don't want to read my column, there is, as you said, embedded in it the video of the interview, and it's worth watching. It's really worth watching. You know, the one, the last tiny little thing, it's, it's funny because sort of the most interesting thing that he's doing right now is the post. And he, he spoke so eloquently about the value of the post. And it just occurred to me while you were talking, what you were just saying about he started this like bookstore. The man started as a bookseller, right? I mean, that's his thing. And the idea that he cares so deeply about the printed word and free speech, its it, it, you see how it connects right into um, his stewardship of the post. When really, yeah. and, and this is, I was talking to Ezra Klein, who was, at the, you know, he's the editor of Vox. He was at the conference and I was like, how did, how did Jeff show up and change the culture of the post? The post is doing great right now. And Ezra looked at me and he goes, he just spent money like those people were there they were ready they were constrained by how poorly the newspaper business is doing and jeff said this is important and started dumping money into it now they're all doing great yeah he actually it's not to contradict ezra but yes he did pump money in and 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 so it was ready yeah to to kind of very quickly get much better return return to what it had been at least uh, partly or mostly but he's also giving he also has a whole set of business ideas right. that are much smarter than let's face it most newspaper publishers <laughs> typically have yes so. that is very true anyway so that's jeff we have an ad i'm going to read that real quick and we'll get back to it let me introduce you to our sponsor ministry of supply is a menswear brand launched out of mit launched as a response to a problem that being menswear it's stiff restrictive and uncomfortable you can't move in it with the lines between work and life blurring more and more our everyday clothing needs need to be able to do more so they combine human-centric research, performance technology, and tailored design to create wear-to-work clothes like dress shirts and chinos that are as comfortable as they are capable. This means clothes like dress shirts and slacks that wick sweat, breathe, and stretch their movements. Their Aviator 2 suit, for example, is so stretchy and breathable, people have run marathons in it, which, I repeat, seems incredibly ill-advised, but there you go. Anyway, their Apollo dress shirt has NASA-invented fibers that regulate body temperature based on your surroundings. So. Visit ministryofsupply.com slash Walt and get 15% off your first purchase using code Walt15. Or visit one of their stores in Boston, San Francisco, and coming soon, Washington, D.C. Let's transition quickly into something he was talking about. Actually, we could transition into both other things we could talk about. But AI, the home, obviously Amazon has the Echo. You had Sundar on stage. You talked a little about AI. You talked a little about Google Home with him. But the news that came out last Friday... Um, was it Tony Fidel, who I, I believe has been on stage with you at one of these conferences yes, before? Yes, um, yes. And I've written about Nest exclusively, and you know Tony is a big personality. He likes me out there. Tony Fidel's leaving as CEO of Nest. So Tony had been at Apple. He was instrumental uh, with the first iPod, along, obviously alongside Steve Jobs and John Rubenstein. He played a part in the hardware of the first three iPhones. Then he left. He started a company called Nest. They did a thermostat. Nest, to me, just... This is a thing. Uh, literally, the first feature I ever wrote for The Verge was about the Nest thermostat. We like launched The Verge at the same time they were launching. So we've had sort of we we've always talked about that, like the our two little companies on their on their paths. Nest got bought by Google a couple of years ago for three point two billion dollars. They bought a company called Dropcam for five hundred fifty five million dollars, almost like six months after Google. bought Yeah, yeah. Well, we just back up here. You. You and Tony talk about how the Verge and Nest are similar. Not similar. Uh, we just we because where was we your three billion dollars? I'm just wondering where your three billion dollars was. I'm, I'm, look, Jeff is Bezos it? is really into publishing, and if I play my cards yeah. right, 
Because, uh, no, you know, Vox Media did pay $3 billion for Rico. <laughs> I hope. I, I got some of that. I mean, I'm just assuming. No, it's that just you... the thing. It's uh, you know, I think Nest employees. Uh, you might have noticed. I've been doing a lot of reporting on Nest this week. Nest employees are, uh, in general, they have spent a lot of time talking to Verge because we wrote that first feature about their first product. Right. Uh, and, and that's look, just a thing. I, I, and that was I like, should say that. And you know, I, I I'll tell you this. Before the, I did the reporting on that feature in 2011, before the Verge had launched. So I was meeting with Tony, and he was showing me, we were doing photo shoots, all this and that, and I actually showed him the design of The Verge before we launched and oh, got cool. designed. Like, you know, it was like one of those. He was showing me his stuff, I was showing, it was, there was a moment there at the very beginning that I think. Um, yeah, that's cool. That, no, look, there's Tony, a uh, I've also known Tony a long time, yeah. and he is a guy, uh, is full of ideas and willing to place bets and. And he's very entrepreneurial. I, I mean, I like him, and I think uh, you like him. But that, but but he certainly was the center of a lot of turmoil. And you, even though you are the editor uh, in chief of The Verge and have lots of other responsibilities, <laughs> I loved it that you took time this week, and I I, I praise you for this. <laughs> Skipped a bunch of probably boring meetings and actually did reporting and writing and on this yeah. on this story. Um, so basically here, it, and I will tell you this story, the big story here is that Google in 2014 made a huge bet on hardware by buying Nest for all this money. It was not necessarily a bet on the smart home. It wasn't necessarily a bet on the Internet of Things. They identified a company in Nest that was run by a former Apple senior hardware guy who had a co-founder that was also at Apple, that unit, Matt Rogers, who has yep. a universally sparkling reputation to, from everybody I talked to. Um, and then he had this team at Nest, which at that time was about 500 employees. Something like 60% of that team was ex-Apple, right? It was ex-Apple hardware people who worked for Tony, who liked for Tony, who'd performed for Tony. So Google in 2014 spent $3 billion buying uh, what one of their board members to me referred to as Apple's DNA. So they brought in this huge hardware unit um, uh-huh. it's two years later and Tony's out. Nest has a new CEO whose job is basically to focus the company and like get better at making smart home stuff. I think that's really interesting for a variety of reasons. We've talked about Google well, and, and at the same time, at the same time, inside of Google, mm-hmm. where Nest used to be, but then got, you know, tossed out into being an independent unit of Alphabet, inside of Google... They're starting – they're another hardware division. <laughs> right. And they brought in Rick Ostrolo who who uh, used to run Skype and Motorola. Well, he used to run things. their old hardware division. Think, he used to run – Google bought Well, Motorola, Motorola was their was – their, yeah, that was just smartphones. But, I mean, presumably hardware is a broader term than just smartphones. But, yeah. So this, this happened yep. inside Google with Sundar making – presumably making that choice – and Rick Ostrolo is running, going to run hardware, the first product of which I assume will be this Google Home sort of Echo clone. And at the same time, t- all this turmoil is happening in the hardware company they had inside Google <laughs> with the Apple DNA. Yep. And it, was a, it was a fascinating story. It's just an absolute clash of culture. So the, the, the story I got was that they, they bought Nest. Nest sold. They were not necessarily – it was not a universal decision at the Nest board level to sell. They sold it because Tony and Matt were super excited about getting access to Google's resources and reach and money, basically. Um, 
18 months later, Google reorganizes into this thing called Alphabet. Google becomes its own independent vision. All these other companies like Verily, which is the life sciences company, Google Fiber, Nest are put into another division, which is just called Other Bets, which... Yeah, great name. Terrific. Great name, yeah. Terrific, super not patronizing name for your other companies. Other Bets, other, yeah. The other shit. Um, Did it have a slash in it, that name? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Um, yeah, Other slash Bets. Anyway, so they're, they're in this other place. It, it didn't work out, particularly because I think you know Tony style, and I think Tony would say this to you. He's of the sort of Steve Jobs school of being very demanding, um, or at least yeah. he you know thinks of himself that way. Um, did not mesh at all with Google's culture of being much more freewheeling and you know googly. That to me is interesting because again, like I'm saying, Google bought this hardware company for three billion dollars. They they had previously purchased and sold Motorola, which you could read the Motorola deal is. We got to buy patents. We need our own hardware division to, to keep Samsung in line. Well, however you want to read it. They bought Motorola, a huge hardware company, flipped it. Then there's all these rumors. They bought Nest. It didn't go well. Lots of rumors they were just going to, you know, the guy they brought in, uh, this guy Marwan Fawaz, his job previously was at Motorola Home, which he sliced and sold to Eris. So there's a lot of rumors about that. So today, did some more reporting just to make you proud of me, Walt. Um, I am. Alphabet sources say categorically, we are not selling Nest. We're going to keep investing in it. We just want to pare it down, get it more focused. So I just keep looking at this. And the story is not, to me, so much about Nest, although I think Nest, you know, they have three products. They could have put out so many more. They have so much money. They have so many employees. Um, The fact that they only have a thermostat, a smoke detector, and a camera that they acquired from another company, that's a little little small. They, they They could do more. But I don't think the story is about Nest. I think this story is about Google and hardware and how the Google culture, which is a very, let's ship software, iterate it, test it, you know, it's, maybe it's broken, it's always in beta, kind of Googleness, and then the demands of shipping great hardware, it, it just doesn't seem like they've managed to align those two ideas ever. And they, they've tried several times, and now they're trying again. Yeah, they try. I mean, you know, when Andy Rubin had the job of running Android, Mm -hmm. which was a company he actually started before uh, Google bought it. He actually showed me and maybe some other journalists. He had, well, he eventually showed it to other people. He had this thing called the Q, which was a home media entertainment device. Can you tell me, we have a Nexus Q here. What the hell did it do? I don't know. Every now and sudden. again, I go into a reviews closet. And I, it was a black sphere, matte black. Right. It had like three. It had that was good enough for me. I stopped <laughs> it, right there. Yeah, the top was spun. I can buy a black sphere that has some kind of algos in it and everything. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. Really? No, it That's cool. Cool as hell. It was a yeah. black sphere. The top spun. No, I think it was a Blue speaker. LED ring. No, it wasn't a speaker. I don't know. It had output audio outputs in the back. I don't know. Media. Media. <laughs> some, some kind of a media box. It was such a confusing and fucking thing. it never shipped. Yeah. And, it, and the big story on that one was going to be made in America, all the stuff, but it never shipped. So Google has – and, you know, they have uh, – they make these Nexus phones or these Nexus phones. They sell Nexus phones. They design them. It's the platform they use typically to bring out new versions of Android. They are, you know – Android purists who want the Google uh, apps and the Google suite but don't want to see anybody else's third-party UX on their phone like the Nexus phones. 
They gave some indications six, eight months ago that maybe they were thinking about making just, – just hints that maybe they were thinking about making phones. And I, my interview with Sundar I brought up again and I got the very strong feeling. He actually flipped it. This goes to your point about hardware versus software. He strongly suggested they were not going to make hardware. They were not going to make the phones. But he said something new. He made a little news which was – but we're gonna we're going to I think what did he say we're gonna have a stronger opinion yeah. about the software and that basically they were then going to take stock Android and put their own sort of additional software on it mm-hmm. so it was all about software again uh, yeah looking at the at the issue of the Nexus phone and saying. No, I don't think we are going to build them. We'll still let the partners build them. But they are but, building it. I mean, I know it's not nearly the same thing, but they're, they're doing the Aura phone, the modular phone. Yeah, they are. But that's that's more of a – I mean, it's not a moonshot in the moonshot sense in Alphabet, but it's, it's a little bit out there. Um, maybe it will be the biggest new thing. I don't know. But I think you're right. They, they, they're not – as comfortable with hardware, and they're certainly not comfortable with the Apple style, uh, which Tony embodied. Right, and I, I and I, the question for me is, and I, I think the CEO of Dropcam, Greg Duffy, who's been running around saying how awful Nest is, well, you would obviously disagree with me. But the question is, can you build great hardware without being so much more demanding that it will ever work inside of the Google culture? And I think. You know, uh, months ago, you reviewed the Pixel C, and you're like, yeah. this is fine hardware, but this soft- no one talked to the software team and made it actually work. The only piece of – there are two pieces of hardware that have come out of Google that I think are, are legitimately great. The Chromebook Pixel, which is very niche and right. literally not for anybody, and the Chromecast. And the Chromecast is great, like legitimately a great product. But it's so, it, the ambition of the Chromecast is so small that it – you know, it, well, and it was done by Sundar when he was just running Chrome and not Android. Right. And uh, it was a very smart idea. I mean, it's evolved since then, but it was a very smart idea, which played to the strength of the software in Android, which unlike in iOS, I mean, iOS kind of actually pioneered the idea of beaming things to your TV um, before Android did. But when Android did it, they did it in a way that it didn't freeze up your phone. It didn't. Uh, you know, make your phone totally dedicated to that task. You could continue to do other things because all they really were doing was triggering a stream from the from the net. Right. Uh, so uh, I would I would pose it a little differently. I mean, there's a lot of issues here. There's financial issues. There's Tony's personality. There's versus you know the Google personality. There's the fact that. This other bets division or alphabet as a whole, if you take Google out of it, doesn't have a lot of other revenue generating things. And here's a startup, and do you really want to, you know, make it be about finances and generating money to support a bunch of other businesses that are that are very far from generating money? I mean, there's a lot of things, but I think Apple is an unusual company, not because it's a tough-minded hardware company, although it is. It's an unusual company because it does do hardware and software in a vertically integrated fashion, and that's just not what Google is. That's yeah. just not what Google is. It doesn't mean Google couldn't do it or pivot to that. 
but that's an unusual kind of company. There's and and Tony built Nest that way, right? In in the Apple image, although with a narrower scope of products, but in the Apple image. Yeah. No, it's just really interesting to me that 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 you know, I, and the story was about Alphabet and corporate reorganizations. But what really stuck out to me was Google spent three billion dollars on Apple DNA, and then summarily is kind of like rejecting it, like. <laughs> they're they're just pushing it away and, and trying to reboot that company culture. And I, I think that's really interesting to me. Anyway, so speaking of Apple uh, and their DNA, uh, WWC is next week. Unusually for Apple, they came out early. They sat down with us, with Lauren Good. Uh, Phil Schiller sat down with Lauren. Um, and they talked about some of their WWC stuff a week ahead. Presumably right. because Dub Dub is going to be action-packed, um, although I think it will be very sort of like, you know, they've got 90 platforms now, so they've got a, they're just going to go down the line, iOS 10, macOS 55, Apple Watch 20, um, yeah. whatever, whatever, Apple TV 60. I'm just, I just, this is a joke I can make for days. Name an Apple yep. product, put a number after Keep it. going, Neil. Yeah, I'm no, not laughing, cool. but I get your point. If I just keep going, Walt, you're going to find it as funny <laughs> as I do. Anyhow, right. um, so the the big thing with Apple, the, their moment was the iPhone and what unlocked the iPhone as the, the next paradigm of computing was the App Store. I think what has happened recently, and, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, is the innovation has moved out of let's download individual apps. It's moved into the cloud. It's moved into AI. It's moved into all kinds right. of other things. Very, very few companies have managed to build a sustainable software business as app developers for phones. Um, there's always a back-end service tied to it, or it's an expression of, you know, a subscription that you buy. Um, so, you know, Microsoft doesn't sell Microsoft Office. They sell Office 365, which is a subscription that your employer buys or you buy, and the apps are free. Google has tons of apps on the phone. All of them are paid for by advertising. They're all free. The only apps that really make right. money are games, particularly free-to-play games, where you, like, buy stuff in the app because you want to play Candy Crush for 10 right. minutes. That I, I think Apple recognized that, that had become a problem. App developers have been saying that was a problem. Casey Newton earlier this year wrote a feature called Life and Death in the App Store, which is all about sort of the, what he called the middle class of apps that were failing because they couldn't generate sales. App developers wanted things like upgrade pricing, demos, all stuff, stuff, make it a more vibrant market. So Apple put Phil Schiller in charge of the App Store. Uh, and we should explain that Phil Schiller is has been for quite a long time, the the worldwide uh, head of, uh, I think he's a senior vice president. I might, Phil, I'm, if you're listening, I apologize if I got the title wrong. But he's a, he's, a, he's a high-ranking executive, reports directly to the CEO, and he hasn't been in charge of global marketing. Right. But the App Store problem and the app model problem was looming, and they needed to put somebody like that, somebody that does report directly to the CEO who uh, uh, has a lot of experience and the charge of it and said they put Phil in charge of it. Yeah, which... Uh, he kept, he's kept kept his marketing job, by the way, but um, he's doing this And, he, well. and he said to Lauren, you know, there's a mindset change when somebody looks at you and says, you're in charge, go, go fix it. So I think that was a really smart move. And so the first set of changes they're unveiling are really interesting because they it's not the little tweaks around the edges of the existing model that some developers have been asking for like let us do upgrade pricing so the new version of the app is 10 bucks but you can get the upgrade for five 
Um, and let us do free trials. Yeah, all, all the stuff apps. that you would do for boxed software previously. Instead, right. that's not what they're doing. They're doing. They're pushing hard towards subscriptions, so that you will pay. I don't know, five dollars a year. And if you, if the app developer, and you just sort of keep getting the app forever, um, as long as you pay, and the app developer, if they keep you for longer than a year, then Apple will actually take less money out of the famous. 70-30 app store cut. So right now, if you sell an app in the app store, 30% of your cost goes to Apple. That's right. the Apple tax that we were talking about. with Which with I like to point out. I like to point out that when they announced that, the developers went crazy with glee because, <laughs> because the cell phone carriers had been the ones they had to deal with before Apple brought up the iPhone and the cell phone carriers took a majority of the money and the developers got a tiny amount. So it didn't seem so bad to pay Apple 30% in 2008. It's, in fact, it seemed fantastic. Right. But w- uh, w- but it has become an irritant for a lot of them. Well, it's an irritant, I think, more for the Amazons of the world, for the Spotify's of the world, right? I mean, Spotify openly says, you can subscribe to Spotify in the App Store, but we're just going to charge you the extra three bucks. If you want to pay the real price, go to the website and sign up there and then log in. Um, I think Apple would like to keep... So we'd like to keep that flow inside of their their perfect little garden. So that's the big thing, right? Instead of instead of I'm going to pay eighty dollars once for this app, and then when I decide to upgrade, I'll pay forty dollars for the upgrade. It's you're going to pay eight dollars a year for ten years. Whoa, whoa, whoa! When was the last time you paid eighty dollars for an app? Well, that's the old model, right? I mean, that that's how big businesses but, in software used to be built, right? You would pay four hundred dollars for Photoshop. But on the Apple Photoshop. App Store. You have not paid eighty dollars for an app, Neil Patel. Uh, I, I, you might have look, paid. Look, I'm an $2. inveterate software pirate. <laughs> and I you run have a that three billion dollars. I know, but um, but the I I think this I think this plays into two things. One is they want to keep developers happy. Developers right now are not happy because it's, unless you're Spotify or a big game pr- uh, producer, it's very difficult to get anybody to download your app and pay you anything. Uh, even if your business model is advertising, you still need a lot of downloads and you're not getting them. So this is an effort to give the app developer a recurring annuity source of revenue through a subscription. But it's also interesting that it, even at the 15% level, it gives Apple more of this services revenue, which... As the sales of iPhones and iPads have fallen, Apple has begun to stress more and more and more. They have a services component of their business. I think I want to say it's twenty billion. It's a lot of money, yeah. And um, it's growing. And I think somebody calculated that the average Apple customer is paying them fifty bucks a year in various ways for various things, you know, storage and whatever. And this is. What, what Phil Schiller has chosen to do here is his first big move feeds right into that overall corporate strategy. Right. It also helps the developers, hopefully, but it feeds into their corporate development strategy. Well, I, it, it's about evening out the revenue for the developer, right? I mean, the again, I encourage everybody to go back and read Casey's piece um, about the middle zone of app developers. It was called Life and Death in the App Store. Peter Kafka actually 
I don't even know if he knew we were doing this story. Um, I assume he didn't. Uh, he put up a piece today called "The App Boom Is Over," and he was like, "App downloads are falling." Yeah, you. No, ha- I don't think he did. He did know, but it was interesting. He he got a hold of some statistics and uh, he wrote a story around it. Yeah, and it, 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 it's basically his thesis is you download Snapchat and Uber, and those are the new apps that people are downloading, and it's because the amount of revenue that app developers can expect is so. It's like literally, it's an unknown. It's like an abstract concept that they can't spend against marketing because they they don't know if they're going to actually get return on investment. Where they can spend on marketing is on Facebook and Google, uh, and they spend a lot of money there. Facebook makes a bunch of mobile revenue on app ads that kick you into the app store. Um, So, what's Apple doing? They're putting paid search into the app store so they can get a piece of that revenue. So, you, you see how. The, where the app economy has landed, which is basically games advertising on Facebook, Apple's responding to it very directly. And I think the goal, as far as I can tell, is, like you said, to, to feed into that bigger services strategy. We're going to make more money off of every iPhone. But I think the more important thing is developers, if they get, if their apps are good enough that you actually want to pay three bucks a year for them, their revenues kind of even out. And they know... They know they can count on, well, if we just deliver a new version of the app, people will just keep paying us this money every year on year. I don't know how any of that is actually going to work, right? Well, I don't either. And I would point out that while all of this makes business sense for the developers and business sense, as we pointed out, for Apple's new uh, services strategy, I think the one hole in it is how does the consumer react to this? I mean, the, there aren't many – apps on there and they certainly aren't popular that cost 50 or 60 or 80 dollars where you could see uh, you know an eight dollar a year or whatever it is subscription price and if you're used to paying free or 99 cents or a dollar 99 and now suddenly it's a subscription I don't know I mean you know the, part of the problem they have is to get consumers, downloading apps again and to get developers making apps that will make them want to download them. But I, I, I just wonder. Yeah. I just wonder about consumers subscribing. And Lauren asked uh, Phil Schiller that question and and he explained that it's pro-consumer because it will protect them from surprises in pricing and you'll always be able to opt out if somebody raises the subscription price, in which case you know you can easily terminate your subscription immediately. That's great. But um, I just think people have now for eight years on Apple and a little less than that on Android been used to app stores offering you apps, which for the most part cost, I would say, under five bucks and a lot of them free. And it's a one-time purchase. There might be in-app purchases if you're a gamer or something, but for the most part, it's a one, you know, you want to buy a weather app. You want to buy even some kinds of productivity apps. They're one-time purchases, and now uh, more and more of them apparently will be subscription. Yeah, and I think it's going to. I'm not. I'm not saying for sure it's bad for consumers, but we don't know. Yeah, and I don't know that Apple knows. And I think it, it, it's funny because if you think about subscriptions in general, you know, Dieter, when we were working on the art and editing the story yesterday, he was like, this is apps as TV. You're going to have a bunch of little channels that you can subscribe to, but eventually Apple is just going to offer you a bundle of essentials for $24 a month, right? And that's apps. 
and they're just, you know, maybe they'll rotate some in and out. But that's the next place they could go. Because the last thing I want is to see my credit card just sort of get dinged in bits and bobs every month for different numbers. You know, in February, I subscribe to this app, and in July, I subscribe to this one, and suddenly every month, it's like, I don't even remember what I was paying for. It's much right. easier to say, we're just going to bundle all this into one payment and hit you regularly and let you manage your subscriptions. Well, and, and, and because, you know, it's, I mean, Apple is, this is a, it's an interesting analogy. Apple has spent years uh, uh, trying and failing to get a TV service going, which would give consumers either a skinny bundle or a bundle of networks and channel, cable channels that, that's one they choose and put together. And it's been difficult. And they haven't been able to do it. But here with apps, I think Dieter could be right. I could see a thing where they said, just like they do with the phones and all their other products, here are three price levels. Uh, for each one, you get a certain number of uh, apps that are just include. You know, you get the subscription all paid for, and you pick them. I mean, you know, here's 100 apps. You pick the for this price, you can get 12 and pick the 12 you want for this price. I mean, if they wanted to, they could do that. And the consumer would, A, feel like they were getting a bunch of stuff for one price. So the credit card statement doesn't have a million things on it. And and B, choice. Uh, but he's not saying that to Lauren no, yet. Not at all. And and I, I, I think, to me, just the way this sounds just today... It's it's a little messier than I want it to be. They've you got they say there's going to be UI to manage it, um, and that it's going to be so easy. But you know Apple stuff. But you got to see it, and it's got to be in action before before we'll know. And I'd also mention one thing, uh, and this is just maybe too insidey, but I mean I think it's fantastic that uh, uh, Lauren got the story, uh, and uh, she did a great job on the story. I recommend everyone read it. In addition to Casey's earlier story. Um, But the fact that Phil Schiller laid all this out uh, to The Verge uh, (laughs) before WWDC suggests to me that either they wanted to prepare people in advance, developers particularly, or they're not going to give much time to it on stage at WWDC. I think that's it. I think it's it's wonky. It's it's for... A different kind of audience. It needs time to percolate. I think my assumption is they want developers to come to WWDC and focus on how do you build apps for our 95 platforms and give time for the business model stuff to sort of bake itself out because they're not launching until the fall. So they've got runway. And I think as much as WWDC is for developers, Tim Cook's got to get on stage and say, you know, new Apple Watch OS, new new, new iOS, OS 10, new, OS 10, new, new iOS, iOS yeah. new TV OS. Presumably, new Apple Music stuff. I mean, there's there's a lot there. Um, iTunes ninety seven, iMovie sixty three. I'm going to keep doing it, man. <laughs> Photos twenty five. <laughs> See, I got you in the end. All right. Uh, so Dub Dub is next week. Keynotes on Monday. We'll be back next week to talk all about it. Um, we're 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 well over an hour here. We should. We'll be on. there. Well, yeah. Walt and I are going to be there. Walt and I are live logging together. That's always a good time. Um, so tune in on Monday for that. At the same time, by the way, E3 is happening. We're expecting a bunch of Microsoft Xbox One news, a bunch of PS4 news. I'm really, I'm ready to buy a PS4 VR the second Sony will take my money. So I'm excited for that. Um, so huge week next week. We'll be back next week to talk all about it. Uh, in the meantime, 
There's other stuff to listen to from The Verge. We've sort of rebooted The Vergecast. Check that out. That's That comes out on Fridays. Uh, too embarrassing. Can you always do The Vergecast at midnight? <laughs> no, a little I, bit drunk and fantastic. super exhausted. One, for those who don't know, everyone, I'm going to order everyone <laughs> listening now to go back and listen to The Vergecast that, that, that Neli and, and Casey Newton and Dieter Bone and Lauren Good did uh, from the Code Conference when everyone was exhausted and they had had some, maybe some drinks, and they, they did this thing at about midnight, and it was fabulously smart and funny. <laughs> and super ridiculous. Maybe the best ad read on any podcast ever. you got to listen to it. Um, yeah. Uh, Casey and his, his newscaster voice. Anyhow, so there's a Vergecast listening out on Fridays, Too Embarrassed to Ask with Lauren Good, uh, which is wonderful. Uh, Chris Plant does What's Tech. Uh, Kara Swisher does Recode Decode. Peter Kafka does Recode Media. Uh, Emily and Liz do Virgie SP. Please, God, don't let me forget any of them. That's it. Whatever. Listen to all of those and then come back to us next Thursday after this big week of news and we'll be back for you. You can tweet at Walt and I. We love it. We especially love it when you tweet intro suggestions to us. Walt is at Walt Mossberg. I'm at Reckless. Anything, any other way you want to get hold of us, Carrier Pigeon, you know, you want to mail us stuff, just figure it out, do it. Uh, that's it for our show. Uh, man, really news packed. It's promised, I think. More news than the election last <laughs> night. Man, actually, the next episode is just going to be hardcore politics. That'll be great. Anyway, that's it. Thanks, Walt. That was wonderful. Thanks, Neil. Take care.